As we wrap up this series of knowing God, the last uh, attribute of God that we want to talk about today, which is, la- which is not the last of all of God's attributes, but just for this series, is uh, God's omniscience, the reality that God is all-knowing. That means that God has perfect knowledge of all things past, present, and future. So for those of you that remember Pastor Singap's message from two weeks ago, or for the city campus, it would have been just last week for you guys, Pastor Singap shared that a few things that an all-powerful God cannot do. And in the same way, a God who is all-knowing also has things he cannot do as well. An all-knowing God cannot learn new things, for example, because he already has all knowledge. He's never surprised. He never forgets. Essentially, God can never say, oh, that's never occurred to me before. So A.W. Tozer, in his book, Pursuit of God, he summarizes it in this way. God is omniscient, which means that he knows all things uh, in one free and effortless act, all matter, all relationships, all spirit, all events. But when it comes to this topic, I have a feeling that many of us here today are not asking the question, does God really know everything? Because the Bible actually makes that pretty clear. And even if you're here today as a guest, maybe you're exploring Christianity you know, I also don't think that if, you, if, if God does exist, I don't think you have too much struggle to grapple with the fact that maybe God does know everything. So what I've done is that I thought I'll just do a little bit of the homework for you guys in advance. Um, so for those of you who are interested to see what the Bible really has to say, and there's a lot of verses that talks about God's omniscience, I've just left them on FCC.live uh, for you to take a look at in your own time. Okay, so with that as the baseline though, today what I want to do is I want to talk about why is that important? Why is it important that God is omniscient and how does that change the way we live? That's what I want to talk about today. So before we continue, let me pray for us. God, we, we know that as we go through this series, we are really just scratching the surface. But God, I pray that even though as we're just touching a glimpse of how incredible and amazing and beyond comprehension you are, that it would still bring us into a state of awe and want to worship you and want to trust you and place our faith in you all over again. So God, I just pray that you'll do the exact same this morning as we touch on your omniscience as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the three important truths that I want to talk about today that I believe stems from God's omniscience, and the first is this, nothing is hidden from God. One of the really fascinating passages that you'll find is in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, where we're up to in the biblical storyline is that the early church just started. It's flourishing. People are being added to the church daily, and the church is really building momentum. It's in this time that we see a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. They had sold their property to give their money to the apostles to support their ministry, which is amazing. So if they were a couple from FCC and they sold off their property to give to the church, we would be applauding them to say that they're sacrificially generous and faithful in their, in their pursuit of Jesus, right? But instead, the Holy Spirit made it known to Peter that while they said they gave everything, they had actually kept a little bit of that for themselves in secret. Essentially, they had lied. And because of that, it was something that no one else would have known except for God himself. So when Peter confronted the husband and the wife in separate occasions, they just fell down and and died. So this is one of those bizarre stories where theologians can only kind of speculate why God just acted so swiftly and so quickly 
you know, compared to many other stories in the Bible where humanity fails God. But one thing that it does prove is this, nothing is hidden from God. And as a result, great fear of God swept through the early church and it established the apostles' ministry as well and demonstrated their authority. Two things that an all-knowing God would have known would have been super important to establish right from the beginning as the early church begins to grow. Hebrews 4.13 says this, nothing in all creation is hidden in God's sight. Everything is uncovered and will be laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So nothing is hidden from God. And how should we feel about that as believers? I think it should lead us to feel this tension between feeling very, very comforted and also absolutely terrified. On one side, it's comforting. Why? Because we can be rest assured that just like the story of Acts 5, no evil will escape God's eyes. Even in the present, if it seems like that some evil still exists, and sometimes they don't get resolved or alleviated the way we hope it does, but because God is all-knowing, we know that ultimately justice will prevail, and we take comfort that in light of the fact that God is all-knowing, every person will be held accountable for their actions and their motives, and God will judge all evil in his perfect timing. Ecclesiastes 12 says this, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And in a similar way, why is it also comforting? It's comforting because this also means that God also sees every good that will happen, right? Even the ones no one knows about. Maybe you're the one who spends early hours in the waking morning every day praying for your friends and for your family's salvation. Maybe there's been long hours in the office that you've had to cop because your friend or your colleague made a mistake and you're there to help this person out. Maybe you're a young parent and in the most fatigued state you can absolutely be, you still choose to get up of your feet, get out of bed at night just to tend to your child. All those things that no one else sees except God, God sees. And he values and he's thankful to see the way you choose to value others above yourself. But on the flip side, the fact that nothing is hidden from God should also be incredibly terrifying because every time we sin, no matter how subtle, how unintentional it was, God sees. And I'm not just talking about theft, adultery, murder. I'm talking about sin in its exact definition, to miss the mark of God's holiness. So every time we neglect to obey God when the Holy Spirit prompts, every time we think about others negatively in the privacy of our minds, every time we choose selfishness over selflessness, God sees all of that too, and you will be judged one day for every act you do, every word you say, and every deed, oh, every thought you think of. And for Christians, I want to clarify, we know that God has forgiven us in light of Jesus Christ. So I'm not talking about a salvation issue here, but I am saying that we will one day have to give a full account to a holy God. And that thought should be, in some sense, terrifying. So what does that mean for us then? What does it mean for us that nothing is hidden from God? I think if we truly believe that we serve and worship an all-knowing God and that nothing is hidden from Him, Christians of all people should be the most integrous. We of all people should live our lives with integrity because we know that God sees all things. We know that we should live on one side with this healthy fear that God is our ultimate judge, but at the same time, if our integrous acts and our good works are left unseen, or even worse, misunderstood or falsely accused, it's okay 
because we know that God has seen our hearts. You know, many years ago, I read a story about an older Christian man of God, and since my point is on integrity, I have to tell you that I don't really remember the details um, of the story I read. But what I do remember was that this man of God was um, being asked by some of his friends to do something really inconsequential, uh, something along the lines of taking a free chocolate bar that would save him $2 when he wasn't really supposed to, or something like that. And, but what I remember was his response. His response was this, is my integrity before God worth $2? Is my integrity before God only worth $2? And I thought that was really powerful and it changed my outlook altogether for all the years that um, it's been since. You know, when we believe that God is omniscient, nothing, there's no such thing as it's okay as long as we can get away with it. It's okay if no one knows because all our actions, words, thoughts, and deeds, no matter how small, matters in the eyes of God. So for the young people in our midst, maybe for Kinetic, for Vibe, maybe even Impact. You know, maybe some of your friends, you know, when you go to the movies together, you like to buy snacks from outside the cinemas and bring and sneak them in because you'll save a few dollars that way because the cinema food's pretty expensive. <laughs> you know, maybe you have a movie night at your house and you invite some friends over and instead of renting it on Apple TV, that would cost a whopping $5.99, you choose to just download it illegally instead. Maybe some of us have been working from home here and there and maybe while you're working from home, you are making one few too many exceptions because you know that no one would know anyway. But you wouldn't have done that if you were in the office and your colleagues and your manager was around you. My encouragement is this. Whenever you have this tension between, I probably shouldn't be doing this, and, oh, but this will save me some time, you know? Choose integrity. Whenever you say, I don't think God would want me to do this, and, oh, but this will save me money. Choose integrity because God sees and it's not worth throwing aside your integrity before God just to save a few dollars. So that's my first point, that nothing is hidden from God. So live your life with integrity. The second point is this, if God is omniscient, that means that God fully knows you and yet he deeply loves you as well. Hebrews 8:12, it says this, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The parallel to this actually is also found in Jeremiah 31, and these two verses often are the two verses that people will sometimes bring up to question, does God really know everything? Because it sounds like God remembering it no more means that God has forgotten about our sins. But I want to clarify that God in his omniscience does not have short-term memory loss problems. Some of us might do, I can barely remember what I ate for dinner yesterday, but God, does ne God never forgets. He doesn't just love you because he has forgotten about your sins. That wouldn't be love. That would just be ignorance. But despite knowing everything about you, knowing your sins, knowing your imperfections, knowing the way you've let him down and the way you will continue to maybe fall, God, when God forgives, he chooses to put aside his knowledge of that sin and chooses to not let that play any role in the way that he relates to you and the way that he loves you. You know, one of the things I realize is um, that I do um, is that sometimes I would notice something that my wife would do that's very inconsequential. So because it's such a small thing, I just let it slide, as we all should with small things, right? But then once in a blue moon, she might bring up something, you know, lovingly for the purpose of building me up. And I would go, oh, but that thing, you did that six months ago. So I thought I'd let it slide, but I remember, <laughs> haven't let it slide yet. 
God doesn't do that. When God says he remembers no more, he puts it away. He puts it away and he never lets that hinder our relationship again. He fully knows you and yet he deeply loves you as well. How do I know this to be true? I'll show you from scripture. I'll, t- I'll give you an example from the Old Testament and then the New Testament as well, and you'll see how amazing God is. From the Old Testament, there's a very, very special day in the Jewish calendar called the Day of Atonement. You'll find that in Leviticus chapter 16. So what happens in the, in the Old Testament lifestyle is that all year round, every single day, the Israelites have to sacrifice animals to worship God, to give him offerings, to, to have their sins covered. But chances are there's many, many, many Israelites, hundreds and thousands, and there's a lot of laws. So chances are not every sin gets covered when they do their sacrifices. So the Day of Atonement is a special day that God had instructed for them to do where it involves two goats. The first goat gets sacrificed for the sins of the entire community, covering all the uncovered sins. And then the second one, and catch this one, the second one is called a scapegoat. The priest would confess over the goat's head, put a hand over his head, and just just basically pronounce all the wickedness and the rebellion of Israel throughout the entire year onto this goat, symbolically transferring the sins onto this goat. And then he'll cast this goat away, and it will never come back. This goat who has just symbolically received all the sins of the entire nation of Israel gets cast away, and it never comes back. And that's the image I want you to keep in mind when we talk about God's desire to cast away our sins so that when he relates to us, it's not hindered by sin anymore, so that his people can now dwell in his holy presence and enjoy fellowship with our heavenly Father. It's a beautiful picture. Now let's take a look at the New Testament, even better, because why? God shows his love through Jesus. The Bible, as some of you would know, or many of you would know perhaps, that Jesus is the Son of God, and in Colossians it says that he is the image of the invisible God. So as we come to know Jesus more through the Gospels, and as we see how he relates to people, we see how God wants to relate to us. And in Jesus, what do we see? We see that he is the Savior who has the power to expose our sins. He, but at the same time, he has the compassion to redeem. In Jesus, we see the supernatural ability of God to see everyone fully, even their hidden motives, but we still see his desire to draw near to love. We see that he fed and healed crowds of people, knowing that he would be deserted. He washed Judas' feet, knowing he would be betrayed. He befriended Peter, knowing he would be denied. And he invited Mary into his presence, knowing she was a sinner. So how can we be so certain that God doesn't just know you to bits, but he loves you to bits as well? Because through Jesus, God shows us that he is willing to draw near in order to love, even if it comes at his expense. And we see that ultimately culminate through the cross. A.W. Tozer, in his other book, Knowledge of the Holy, says this, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit just to make it a bit easier to understand. This is what he says. To us who have the hope of the gospel before us, how unutterably sweet is the knowledge of our heavenly Father who knows us completely. No gossiper can inform on us, No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our character can come to light to turn God away from us, since he knew us utterly and still called us 
to himself. It's beautiful. So what does this mean for us if we are fully known and yet deeply loved? It means that as Christians, we can live freely for God. Now, when I say freely, I'm not saying that you can now go do whatever you want, because those of you who were around for the Galatians series late last year, you remember that freedom in Christ does not mean that you can now abuse it and keep on sinning. But it does mean that you're freed from being enslaved from the things uh, that ultimately will never truly satisfy you. You know, whether you are a Christian or not, as you're listening in this place, we all have to live for something. It's just how we're wired. We have to live for something. And whatever you live for, the Bible shows you that it will enslave you. And, even, and on top of that, it will even fail you because it won't satisfy you the way you think it will. Live for money and your life will be absorbed by trying all sorts of ways to earn and to save more, but you'll never feel like you have enough. Live for your body and beauty and you'll always feel like there's more you can do to look better. Diet, exercise, new products, the list goes on. Live for power and you'll always feel weak and intimidated in front of those who have more power than you. Live for your reputation and you'll always be conscious about getting caught for doing something that will damage it. Live for pleasure and there will always be the next holiday, the new product to buy or experience you want to experience because you want to pursue them because the last high has worn off. Even if you live for people, you'll be consumed by trying to win their ongoing affection and that when they don't give you that, it completely destroys your life. And you'll even be disappointed because they're not as perfect as you thought they were. Whatever you live for, you'll be enslaved by it because it will become your God. And then you'll be disappointed that it doesn't eternally satisfy you. But if you live for God, God is the only person you can live freely for. Why? Because there's nothing you need to do and there's nothing you can do to earn the love that he's already given you nor will he fail you because he is the infinite well that will eternally satisfy. Because of that, when you know that you're fully known by God and deeply loved, you can live freely for God. So the first point was that in God's omniscience, nothing is hidden. So live with integrity. And the second point is that because you're fully known and deeply loved, you can live freely. The last thing I want to say about God's omniscience is this. God's ways are higher. Now, this needs a little bit of explaining. Isaiah 55, 9, it says this, For just as the heavens are above the earth, so are, this is God speaking, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Because God is all-knowing, his ways has to be higher than ours. He thinks faster than the combination of all the fastest supercomputers in the world. He knows more than the collective wisdom of the greatest thinkers of all human history. And he remembers more than the database of all records. He is an all-knowing God. You would think that if we see God in that way, there's no way we would ever doubt God and his ways. But the reality is that Christians and non-Christians doubt God and trust in ourselves Again and again and again, we're prone to making this mistake. Why? Because in our sinfulness, we have this bad habit of elevating our view of ourselves and then we lower our view of God to the point where we think we know better than the Almighty God. And instead of trusting in God's ways, we learn to trust in ourselves instead. In our modern day, 
especially in the West, which is where we're a part of, this tendency for humanity to define good and evil for themselves gave rise to what we call today secularism, a society that now elevates logic and reason above everything else, including God. So whatever logic and reason cannot explain, it is not worth considering. I'm not against reason or logic. Those of you that know me know that I love those kind of things. I came from an engineering background and I teach maths and I'm really not good at English. I'm just a maths person. But I, I value logic and reason. I think it's incredibly important, but I think it becomes an issue if we trust in logic and reason above our trust towards God. To give you one example, one of the ongoing questions that continues to satisfy those in the West is this question, why does God allow suffering? The typical argument against God goes something like this. If God really is a good God, he won't allow suffering. If God really is an all-powerful God, he can prevent suffering. But the reality is suffering is still occurring every day. So therefore, God cannot be either all-powerful or all-good, and definitely not all at the same, both at the same time. But this is an age-old argument that comes with a flaw that comes from a secularist society. Because in Tim Keller's words, whenever someone says this, whenever someone says, I can't believe in God because he allows an evil and suffering to exist, what he's really saying is this, because I have no good reason to think about why suffering and evil exist, therefore there cannot be a reason at all. Because I can't think of any good reason why God would allow this suffering to occur, Therefore, there can't possibly be a reason. But if God is all-knowing and his understanding is beyond our grasp, can you, can you see how this thinking is flawed and how it's actually incredibly arrogant? Because why can't an omniscient God run the world that's beyond our understanding the way he wants to run the world? This isn't some leap of illogical blind faith. And it's not the only response to the topic of suffering because it's a very multi-layered, complex issue. But it is one logical and biblical conclusion you can come to when you thoughtfully consider all of God's attributes. The fact that he's all-powerful, he's all-loving, he's all-knowing, he's all-good. It's a logical and biblical conclusion they can come to. The conclusion that God's ways are higher. And sometimes we just have to humbly accept that we will not fully understand on this side of eternity. And when you reach this conclusion, you'll find that this truth is important because it actually brings great hope. It's not just for an intellectual discussion. It actually brings hope in the way we live our lives in a way that secular thinking cannot. Because the secular response, whatever they say to this question, doesn't resolve anything at all. Suffering still remains. Now what? But for Christianity, the reality of God isn't just an explanation. It gives hope. Why? Because in God's omniscience, as I mentioned earlier, He knows all things past, present, and future. And in His timeline of eternity, He has graciously revealed to us what the beginning looks like and what the end looks like. The beginning was a good world with no evil and suffering the way the world was designed to be. The only thing was, in that good world, there was only three people. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you want to progress the timeline a little bit, you can chuck in Adam and Eve as well, I guess. But that's all there was. But at the end, what we see is a redeemed world, also with no evil and no suffering. But the difference? Every tribe, tongue, and nation who confess Jesus is Lord is a part of that redeemed world. 
you and I get to be a part of that redeemed world, and we get to enjoy eternal fellowship with the Heavenly Father. The incredible thing about Christianity is that it's one of the few worldviews where the end is painted not just as an abstract thought, but it's painted with certainty. And the incredible thing is that how we get there is not contingent on human behaviors. We know for a certain fact that it's based on an already accomplished work of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. What Jesus did was he essentially replaced the role of the two goats. Jesus died for our sins so that we don't have to die for a death we should have died. And then, just like the scapegoat, Jesus took on all our sins and cast it away forever so that God can now relate to us in his eternal presence without sin ever hindering this relationship. So all this messiness that that happens in the middle, some of which we call suffering, we may not always know why things happen the way they do, but we can have hope that it leads us down towards this path, towards a glorious end. And this hope gives us a reason to persevere in the present, in faithfulness, despite the questions we may have and the challenges we face. So what does this mean that God's ways are higher? It means that we are to trust Him at all times. It's not based on our conditions. We are just to trust Him as our Heavenly Father at all times. In fact, this implication isn't just for knowing God's omniscience. I would suggest that it's the implication of this entire series of knowing God. It should lead us to trust in Him. If over this series you've grown in your belief and your understanding of God's God's attributes. God is sovereign. He's full of glory. He's all-present. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And all that does is that it intellectually stimulates your thinking for a little while. And if all that does is that it taught you something new, that would be meaningless. Knowledge has to translate into wisdom in the way we live our lives and worship the way we live for God. The knowledge of God needs to lead us to humbly say, I gladly choose to trust in this God who is far more in control of the world than I am and knows me far more than I know myself. So as I come to a close, let me share a short story. There's a true story of a father who was out hiking with his son that he loved so much, Zach. He's a little boy. And the father was walking and they were hiking and the kid was excited and running around and climbing little rocks and mini cliffs. And then as the dad was hiking, he suddenly hears a voice from above and it's his kid. Zach had climbed up this fairly tall rock and has jumped off the rock and said, hey, dad, catch me. And he's falling towards him at the speed of gravity, 9.8 meters per second. And out of just a moment of panic, the father just manages to catch him, but the momentum drags him to the floor and they both fall down. So in that moment of panic, the father recollects himself. He finally composes himself enough to gasp at his son, Zach, and goes, Zach, can you give me one good reason why you just did that? And Zach responded with remarkable calmness. Sure, because you're my dad. There's something so pure about a child's trust in his parents. Zach knew that his father loves him and would do anything to protect him. So he trusts in him. It's that simple. And maybe that's why when you read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, he has an affinity with little children. In Max, uh, Max, in, in Matt, Matthew chapter 18, he tells his believers to change and to become like little children if you want to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's a call to return to the simplicity of just learning to trust our Father like little kids would trust their earthly father. You know, for some of us, as we grow older, we become more and more skeptical, if you want to put it that way. We become calloused by the bruises of life, and our hearts harden from moments of disappointment. We think we're just maturing. We think we're growing up. We think we're becoming more realistic in the way we view the world. But actually, for some of us, we're losing our childlike faith that just trusts in our Heavenly Father because we know He is a good God. But I want to encourage you this morning God is a good God that you can trust. He knows you more than you know yourself. He's in control of the world far more than you think He is. And if you place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus promises to give you life and life to the full. So, can we all come to a stand? I want to pray for us and I want us to worship God a little bit. And then I want to call some of us to respond to this message. God, we, we love you. We are so thankful that you're this incredible God who has not just, not just knows the whole world, but you have made yourself knowable to us. And through the scriptures, through experience, we can see how good of a faithful God you are how you're far beyond our comprehension, how you're totally worthy of worship and how you're worthy of our complete trust. So God, I just pray that you will soften hearts today, that you will allow people who have over time found it harder to trust you to soften their hearts and to trust in you afresh. Trust that you are a good God that they can give their lives to because when we give you our lives, you promise to give us life and life to the full. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.